This is Faith and Letters. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. founded the Tory Honors College, the Socratic Great Books program at Biola University. After many years there, he went on to serve as provost at Houston Baptist University and later to help found the St. Constantine School, an Orthodox classical Christian school in Houston, Texas, where he still serves as president. I studied under Dr. Reynolds during my first year at Biola. And although I ultimately left Tory to complete a more traditional English degree, I've always thought back fondly on my time in the program. And after that initial exposure, I've continued over the last couple decades to be intermittently fascinated by the assumptions and values that underpin classical education, as well as the development of the Western canon, which is a big part of any great books program. I very much enjoyed reconnecting with Dr. Reynolds generally and also getting an opportunity to ask about his own take on and experience with this particular and ancient mode of formation. I would like to, I probably should make a disclaimer up front or a sort of a, almost a journalistic disclosure, which is that you were the founding director of a a program, the Great Books Program, which is called the Tory Honors Institute at Biola University, where I graduated in 2005. And I studied very briefly under you and the tutors there. It was only one semester, which we can touch base if we need to, or I can reference my very peripatetic sort of circuitous route that I took through through college um, and the extent to which my exposure to various different kinds of you know, understandings of pedagogical systems or public school, Christian school, all that is relevant to some of my interests. But I, I did do that. that so that would have been uh, in the fall of 2001. And I actually have some some very sweet and distinctive memories of those sessions. Um, so that so that's a thing. So that's how we have had contact in the past. And you have now been for what I think the better part of a decade at a school in Houston, the St. Constantine School, which is like a kind of a K through college, a total comprehensive classical Christian school. Yeah, uh, I, I came to Houston to be the chief academic officer of Houston Baptist University out of Biola. I loved being at Biola, could have stayed at Biola. I, you know, they at that time wanted me to stay at Biola and came here because I thought there was an opportunity to do something that eventually I, some funders uh, got together and decided that we should do it through the St. Constantine name project, but had a great time at HBU, started the apologetics program there, a kind of cultural apologetics, a defensive apologetics uh, program, uh, and started film uh, while I was there, and we helped reboot kind of the Honors College. Uh, I've done a lot of that, uh, but then I uh, too much debt inside of college. And I'm not talking about Biola or HBU or any place I've worked. This is just across the board. And we need some solutions to debt. And online to me is not the primary solution because I think of education today, 
I had two students, two juniors, sitting in my office talking about Plato's Symposium, outlining the book, thinking about it as hard as they could, and talking about their life and the nature of Eros and what that meant. And that, to me, feels like education. Okay, that's great background. And although you may not want to talk about debt related to Biola, uh, people can contact me separately about that. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be happy to. Um, um, well, you know, I, I have to, I am, um, so many of my former students work here in the St. Constantine Project. And so uh, I have, you know, former Tory students who are in their mid 40s. Uh, one of the first graduates of Tory Honors uh, married Gary Hartenberg, Jen Hartenberg. She runs the Blue Bonnet Collective, which is a kind of homeschool. Uh, collective and Gary is the director of the Honors College. So I know the impact that college and university debt has on people right through their 30s and 40s. And uh, I, again, I'm not particularly picking on the colleges where I work because that's the way it gets funded. Yeah, we could talk all day about that. That's obviously, you know, a big thing even in the national consciousness and, and there are, <clears throat> there's a lot going on even now around that debt forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to kind of frame a conversation with you around kind of the general idea and, and some of the curiosities and questions I have about the style of, uh, you know, what's often called classical Christian education that you've, that you've already alluded to and obviously is the, the thing at your school. Um, in which I've had, you know, largely a kind of a, a glancing, sort of tantalizingly brief experience with myself. And I'd like to do that, um, actually, just sort of fortuitously. I hadn't anticipated this, but as I was doing my prep, I think it, one way to sort of naturally frame it is as a parent of young children. I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old, and my son will be, you know, starting... Uh, kindergarten a year from now, and it's, my wife and I are just starting to think a little bit more about like, all right, what 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 is this going to be like in public school, or what was our experience like when we were in school, and kind of what do we hope for? And obviously, a lot of our friends are going through some of those same deliberations as well. So, that being said, um, I, I imagine the question I'm about to ask you could eat up a lot of our time. Let's try to not have it eat up a, a lot of our time, but just just to give what feels like a little bit of necessary context for people who might be coming. Um, with a pretty low knowledge level of what, you know, quote unquote, classical Christian education is. Could you give us like the 60 second um, kind of version of what the what the pedagogical system is, what the understanding and sort of the cornerstone um, tenets both are sort of, I guess, ideologically and also in terms of the methodology of how children are educated? I can. Uh, classical Christian education was born in the Orthodox East under a person named St. Basil. Uh, you could also look at St. Augustine as one of the founders, but St. Basil in, particularly, in particular wrote very clearly about this. And it says this, here, here's the central tenet, what makes classical Christian education classical and Christian? It says, we are in dialogue with the very best of human thought as Christians. And that dialogue can be, is a pursuit of virtue and wisdom and joy and that dialogue can be as open-ended as possible, and in St. Basil's time can begin with something like Homer. We can seek virtue inside of Homer. Uh, Basil's famous for having written uh, what in the better scientific treaties of his time uh, as a bishop, kind of reflecting on what was going on in the world. Uh, every educated person carried it around. So it doesn't just include literature. Uh, it, you learn to read well, write well, think well, be numerate, I understand scientific methods. They wouldn't have called it that back then. But you're in dialogue 
inside the tension between Athens and Jerusalem. And this tension could be viewed as adversarial, but classical Christian education views it as a creative tension. So it's constantly dealing uh, with the tension between, you know, what the very cutting edge of research in a particular field shows and what traditional Christianity is taught. And that's not always a conflict metaphor. It's often a, oh, that's a new insight into something we've always believed. So a lot of what gets, gets called classical Christian education is unfortunately, I think, a marketing term. So the real key to classical Christian education is to think of it as, and this may be another jargon term, dialectical. That is, it stands in tension. It asks questions. Questioning is central, not propagandizing. It's the Oxford tutorial. You come in with a paper. Now, with seventh graders, this is a very different sort of process. But you come in with an idea, and a tutor uh, goes back and forth with you, helps guide you, helps you think about it, sends you back out to do work. Uh, it's very, if you like, highly individualized. Now, with very small children, this means it's often focused on wonder and play and exploration. Like we have chickens and sheep uh, on our very urban campus because they're out experiencing the world. They get at least an hour of outdoor play that's very unguided and unrestricted because we want them to dialogue with a tree uh, at that age uh, and climb it and experience risk, not hazard, but risk. And so that becomes part of the dialectic for very small children. The text is the tree or the sheep. I suspect in some ways I'm sort of the target, the target uh, audience, not in a commercial marketing sense, but just like the the kind of person to whom this idea, uh, you know, it feels very romantic almost, and it, it it appeals to me. So, you know, as somebody who who already has that, maybe we'll we'll come back to that, and they'll probably just come through. But it feels actually maybe a little bit more productive or interesting to sort of tease out both both critiques I've encountered in just reading about it, uh, this model over the years, and also some of the, you know, concerns or curiosities that I have myself, um, and even in talking with other, other parents about this topic. So let me kind of dive into some of those, and maybe we can unpack, uh, unpack this. I can't imagine that you haven't heard these before or get asked these by parents even on a regular basis. So um, one that you kind of already touched on is is just this general idea that this this model almost necessarily as a kind of trade-off given given some of its emphases is essentially weak on the sciences or on stem education or that it somehow you know students who go through these um kinds of curricula don't perform as well regarding you know stem being science technology um what's the e engineering and mathematics um, it, it, does that, is that baseless in your mind or is that something? I, I think it really is baseless. Yeah. Hmm. And it may be caused by a certain demographic of schools that call themselves classical Christian. But for example, here, we don't give entrance exams into our high school or the K through 12. We are full service. Uh, we try to take everyone we can. And, you know, we have reading specialist that works here and we have a behavioral specialist uh, we can't deal with every kind of student that exists uh, in the world, but we, uh, if you want to send your kid here, we work pretty hard to make it work for you. And we are extraordinarily diverse inside of our student body. If you look at our college faculty, uh, we look like Houston, and Houston is arguably the most diverse city in the United States. 
uh, and we intentionally are in an urban, urban part of Houston. So back over my shoulder, if people could see, uh, this is not my term for it. Uh, it's called a little India uh, inside of Houston. And if you go to my right, within a mile, all the street signs are in Chinese. And if you move to my left, this is the historic black district inside the city of Houston. And so we try to reflect that. We're in a neighborhood on purpose where the average household income, I live next to campus, is $20,000 a year. Uh, so we are trying to be in and of Houston and look like Houston, which means we want our reading to be relevant. We want to think about ideas that will matter in a city like Houston. And so we get asked this sort of question all the time because Houston is space city. Is Houston, we have a problem, isn't about Plato. It's about NASA. This area, whether it's um, oil and energy or it's NASA or it's Rice University, our founding uh, vice chair was the Rice Centennial Historian. Uh, she worked very hard at a place like Rice, which is known for STEM. It's one of the best universities for STEM in the world. Uh, and our high school students have left here and gone to Rice. Uh, in some cases into astrophysics, because given everything I just said about our school, every student graduates here having passed calculus. So all of our students, like in very few countries, there are countries in the world where all 17, 18 year olds pass calculus. That would be true here. Uh, the average St. Constantine student has math through calculus and has science uh, done in the most robust way uh, using basically by the end secular college textbooks. Uh, and so we don't give up anything. We're a great book school. They also read a great text, uh, a diversity of great texts, but we don't give up anything on STEM because if you think about St. Basil, why would we do that? We're in dialogue with that kind of talk. So I, I don't think we have to give up anything on STEM, but I will say this, if your goal in life is to grow up to get a PhD in history, uh, you could go here, K through 16, and do that. But I, it might not be the place you would choose if you knew that at 18 or 19 or 20, that that was your career goal. Uh, because we're not going to break down and specialize in that way. That's, okay, that's a, thorough, that's a thorough response. The next concern that I have, I think merits a sort of caveat. Let's try to approach this from the... Uh, uh, let's try to let's try to uh, investigate a steel man or respond to a steel man. Have you heard that term as opposed to a straw yeah, a straw man? Because I think this this next topic of sort of um, it's just very charged, um, but also I think very relevant. And and it's interesting that in the response to the to the sort of sciences question, you've already referenced the well known you know sort of racial and ethnic diversity in history of Houston specifically. There is a, a critique one can imagine, and I, I think has some kind of in, intuitive merit or is a sort of one that would eventually bubble up, obviously, at least for a person who's been born after a certain age and raised in a certain sort of milieu within the unique multicultural experiment that is the United States about the, the question of how, um, I think that, you know, in, in relation to the, to the the great texts component specifically of the of the curriculum and the emphases how that works um in terms of the the necessary inevitable emphases and choices that are that are being made and you you talk pretty pretty regularly and openly 
in your writings and in your lectures about the West. Um, we can clarify what that means, and it's interesting because you're also you're an Orthodox Christian, and you, you've already referenced Orthodox figures. That's that's Eastern Christianity. It seems simultaneously probably fair to guess that someone, uh, you know, we can make an argument that that anyone or or someone from, let's say, and I'm trying to think of a, a region you referenced, India, someone from South Asia, is going to uh, recognize, I think, if they're if they're fair, that they have a some kind of human cultural inheritance um, in which we can put the Homers and the Plato's of the world and at least a number of other figures that would fall into, you know, the generally accepted Western canons uh, of antiquity. And at the same time that going to school in the United States and then more specifically going to this kind of classical Christian school is not going to be a, a place where there is an emphasis on like, uh, you know, Hindu cosmology or, or sort of the Buddhist intellectual tradition, or maybe even an Islamic take on, you know, astronomy or the sciences, even though that's a rich cultural inheritance. What is the the strongest case that could be made highlighting what the the cultural blind spots or downsides that you need to guard against in this kind of curriculum? Um, is, is, there, is there kind of any just necessary trade-off that is made or is that really uh, not something to worry about for a prospective parent who maybe does not come from, you know, a, a European ethnic heritage and is concerned that maybe their child is not going to get a, a full kind of picture of human history by studying these specific texts? Yeah, I, I should say right away that our original organizing group comes out of Syria and Palestine and Lebanon. So it would be an odd uh, group of people to want to have a Eurocentric uh, view of things. I, I just spent a summer class uh, teaching a group of D-Men students at St. Vlad Seminary, uh, where I uh, do some faculty work at the doctoral level. And all the students were traditional Indian Christians from the subcontinent of India. So uh, one nice thing about being Orthodox is you immediately know that the world included ancient Aksum uh, near where Ethiopia is today, uh, Alexandria, Antioch, which is central uh, to the group that organized this school, uh, you know, Constantinople, over to Rome, to Oxford, to Washington, D.C. And so questions of canon for the Orthodox are very important. Uh, because we have tended, having been conquered often, to be organized by the people who conquered us into ethnic enclaves and had to think about preserving language. So language was really important uh, to classical Christian education, making sure Greeks could still speak Greek, that Arab Christians could still speak Arabic when conquered by Turks, who began to do a lot of the administrative language in Turkish. Uh, and so, to the contrary, this school spends a lot of time thinking about Islam, Islamic writers, uh, and things like that, because we've spent 600 years having to think about that sort of thing in a good way, you know, and having good interactions. Uh, so let me try to answer your question by saying, first of all, uh, we think about it all the time, and we're never going to get it right. I'm, I'm not going to say, I, as a white guy, I'm going to give you the final answer. Uh, I have a big group of people, a diverse group of people who sit and think about this all the time, including our provost, Dr. Tim Bartell. This is a major worry that we have. But uh, the other thing I will say to start with, and this is where I don't want to straw man anyone, nobody covers everything. 
So I, I just have to start by saying, unlike Tory Honors, I have four years in the college curriculum here, so we can do more. But you really only have 16 years to be the most generous uh, way starting in kindergarten. So how do we determine what we do cover in a classical Christian school model? And we come up, and, and I tried to do this in Tory Honors, but I have to say I do a better job of it now if I were starting. And I would say things differently uh, than I did then. Uh, because I have better understandings of how things are heard. I, I don't even particularly disagree with some of what I said, but it, it often could be interpreted badly. Uh, mm -hmm. And sometimes I've just said stupid things. Uh, if you talk for a living, uh, I have probably said any number of things I'm sorry I've said. But let's start with how do we pick the canon? So I want to be really specific. And how do we eliminate things? Because the hard thing is eliminating things. If you're going to tell me the Indian subcontinent has a rich history of Christian writings, like hundreds, thousands of years, theoretically 2,000 years of Christian writings. Let's forget any other tradition. Yes, I know those people. Uh, Sugarland is, in fact, central uh, to a lot of that religious tradition, which is a suburb of Houston. So this is an area where you could not know that. Lucy's, which is the closest restaurant where we spend a lot of time, is a traditionally Ethiopian restaurant. The Orthodox Church uh, of one sort or another has been a very dominant presence inside of Ethiopia, one of the few nations to not undergo long periods of colonization and to remain an empire. Uh, so we have to think about this. So how do we determine what we read and what we don't read? Uh, we try to take the two poles of what our students in Houston are doing and needing. The first thing is, we assume our students are going to live and work in the United States with their primary language being English. And so we take a priority in things that culturally formed and shaped the U.S. at a deep and profound level. So we spend a lot of time reading Shakespeare K through 16. Would we spend a lot of time reading Shakespeare if we opened a school in Moscow, uh, a thing we wouldn't do now, but could have done at one period of time? Uh, Kiev, I guess, would be a better candidate for us right now. If we opened a school in Kiev, no, we would not spend as much time on Shakespeare as we do here. We would spend much more time on great Ukrainian writers who formed and shaped the Ukrainian language, and there are lots of them. Uh, both inside the canonical Russian tradition and the canonical Ukrainian tradition. So we'd have to think hard about that. What forms and shapes the language and the geopolitical system we live in today? So we live under the Constitution. Uh, how do I best understand how the Constitution got created? What are the texts that do that? And, and that kind of language and cultural milieu that we find ourselves in shapes a lot of what we do. But then simultaneously, we're an Orthodox school. We really are an Orthodox school. And the great thing about being part of a global tradition, and I would do this if we weren't an Orthodox school, the Christian tradition is global. And so where does Christianity come from? What are its origin stories? You have to know something about Hebrew. You have to know something about Greek. If you know Greek, that introduces Plato and Aristotle and Homer. I, what else is going on in the Christian world in places like ancient Ethiopia, so that by the time you get to the very end of the curriculum, hopefully you're presenting students with a flowering of Christian thought and then reactions to Christian thought, anti-Christian thought, things that people are having to deal with 
in their own particular regions. Uh, so you spend a lot of time with marks. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that a great text program that's bad uh, has a preordained view of how that text will go. So uh, you don't have to think about my life very hard to realize that I'm not fond of Marxism uh, and that Marxism in some forms has been very hard on Orthodox Christians, even in my lifetime and currently. Uh, but when we read Marx, there are many forms of Marxism. Some Orthodox Christians are Marxists. Uh, many Orthodox Christians have socialist forms of government. Uh, we don't go to Marx in a spirit of hostility. You can't understand a text that way. We try to understand why people love a text like Nietzsche uh, when we approach him in English translation and wrestle with that. Like, how did he shape the world? What's good and lovable? If we read the Book of Mormon, uh, and occasionally we'll have a sub-discussion of Mormonism uh, if we're in a certain region where that becomes very important. We don't start with what's wrong with the Book of Mormon and why we should hate it. We try to understand the Book of Mormon in its own framework, in its own context. Uh, the other thing that's true is we spend a fair amount of time trying to understand historical what's going on around uh, the books you're reading at the time you're reading them. Uh, and that's kind of endless, right? That this is the whole history of the world could spin out from any great book. But if you take those two poles, the sort of where are you located and what language do you expect people to work in? That's pole number one, uh, I guess, subdivided. Uh, and then you take the fact that we're a Christian school and the expectation is that people are either from the Christian tradition or they want to think inside of it or think whether they want to think inside of it. Uh, that's our mission. Oh, I appreciate that. That was an expansive response, but actually very uh, illuminating and interesting. And even when you knew me 20 years ago, I would have told you that one of my favorite poets in English was the Black poet Langston Hughes, has been since fifth grade. I've written a fair amount online about Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes is a really good example of a poet we read here, not because he happens to be my favorite poet, but because of where we're located, the language we speak, and the city we live in. I, if I, you know, Langston Hughes, is he a great, great poet? I, I don't know. I, Tim is a published poet. I'm not. I, but I, I doubt it. And if we were in another country, would we read Langston Hughes? Uh, we wouldn't read many Americans, is my guess. How many Americans would make somebody's great text list? Uh, or probably more films. Great text, by the way, doesn't just mean books. It means cultural artifacts like art, we work with music, we listen to music scores and discuss them, uh, mostly books, but not only, uh, a fair number of films. Would Langston Hughes make a great books list outside of the US? Maybe, but probably not. Uh, C.S. Lewis wouldn't, in all probability. Yeah, C.S. Lewis is a, a near great writer, right? Uh, a little bit like, I would argue, Hughes. Now, Hughes has some cultural cachet that C.S. Lewis lacks uh, because of the horrible history of race here in America. Uh, but um, Lewis is really important and interesting to the project we do in English, but it would be easy to find, for example, Arabic, uh, Lebanese. For example, we had a school in Beirut. Uh, we partner or in process of partnering with the Balaman University in Lebanon. Uh, the great Orthodox uh, University in Lebanon. If we did a, a project like this, we would be more French and Arabic oriented and almost 
surely not read C.S. Lewis uh, inside of that kind of program. I find myself really curious as a 39-year-old who still reads a lot uh, to ask you a little bit about like how texts work for you know the vast majority of our adult lives because even if from 18 to 22 or through some advanced degrees you're you're able to have the the privilege of studying in that kind of uh, context whatever the best version of that is let's say you and just one or two other people or even you know directly one-on-one with a very knowledgeable tutor um how does like what is what what could we hope for or what is your you know frank assessment of kind of how folks can relate to or engage with these texts given your pedagogical model when they're when they're just like coming to them in adulthood yeah i think i think a major problem that we have is that people don't read uh i think we have a high rate of literacy people could read but it, it, it shouldn't be shocking to you to discover people don't read that much uh, compared to how much they should. Uh, we have lots of other things that we can do with our time other than reading, but arguably there's something about reading that has never quite been replaced. So for example, we're having a kind of long form discussion or argument in words, but to really get detailed and have an argument that's not in text, uh, is very difficult. It's hard to imagine science, sciences, and you know there are multiple ways, multiple scientific methods, but even if you take a really expansive view of what counts as science and scientific methods in many cultures and many places, it's hard to imagine science as we know it, NASA science existing without writing and reading, and, and pretty hard writing and reading that requires a really high level of continuous functional literacy. And, and so let's start by saying a lot of people that have credentials, they have college degrees, haven't read a serious book in a decade. And that's not good. And there are people that can't read their own undergraduate papers anymore, not because they've specialized in something else or lost track of the details, but because their vocabulary has actually moved backwards. Uh, they're, they're kind of coasting. They watch way more uh, video, you know, YouTube videos uh, that kind of summarize things for them. Then they wrestle hard with hard ideas or they'll listen to some YouTube. Uh, this podcast itself might substitute for a kind of intellectual activity. Uh, and it's OK to do edutainment. You know, hey, here's the thing. It's pretty educating, but it's also entertaining and I enjoy it. But this isn't, you know, you can't replace the profound intellectual uh, work that you can do in a text with this podcast. Uh, this isn't a substitute for a book. Uh, and so first we got to read. So if people would just read, I'd be happy. And then second, I think at least a lot of books are built to read in dialogue uh, with other people. And this is where the internet's a good thing, right? Like getting together with a group of people over Zoom that are interested in books is now easily possible wherever you live or many places where you live if you have only a little bit of means. You know, you don't have to be super wealthy uh, to go down to a public library and get a copy of Plato's Republic and get an internet connection and sit and have some kind of long form dialogue with a group of people who care. So should adults do that? Sure, they should. Do most adults do that? No, they don't. Uh, should may be too strong. 
uh, if you want to have a kind of one sort of intellectual liveliness and the good that comes with that, I don't know of any substitute to wrestling hard with ideas with people who don't all agree with you and who sharpen you through dialogue. You know, the kind of interaction you get in a lively community of people dedicated to each other who don't always agree over some book that's better than anything you could say, uh, there's a real intellectual good that I think we lose when we don't do that. So ideally, a graduate of Tory is still out there wanting to do that, trying to do that, trying to read and discuss. Uh, you know, a book club gets made fun of, but my wife runs a book club uh, for women that she knows in her life. They name themselves the Wonder Women, uh, and they read books that are really a giant range of things from a uh, very difficult philosophy to one of them writes romance novels and they read one of her romance novels uh, together uh, and critiqued it and talked about it and had a good time uh, doing so. So I don't go to it, uh, but I listen to it and I often envy uh, what goes on there. Uh, we don't have to set the bar at you know uh, very high to say that if we all read a difficult book and then got together with four or five people over a glass of wine and discussed it, uh, many of us would be better off than we currently are. I feel like I could, I could ask you endless, uh, you know, I don't know, technical questions here. We could go down, we could go in any number of directions, but I'm realizing I want to just conserve the last little bit of our time here to, to just kind of ask you some, some personal questions about, you know, as you're presumably, um, God willing, have many more good years, but probably past the, at least the halfway point of your career. I'm actually curious about sort of reminiscing or giving you the opportunity to do that. Um, by let me ask you this question, like, as you look back on these, whatever it's been 30 years, 20 years of teaching students, do you have one or two, you know, sweet moments or stories that you reflect on and feel like I'm grateful I got to be a part of, of that, not maybe like a general sense of I'm I'm glad my career has gone in this direction, but like this was this was a student that I helped, or this was an experience that I went through with someone uh, that I'm grateful for. Yeah, I you know uh, it was a golden time to start Tory Honors. I was sitting with a yellow legal pad and writing it out and talking to Philip E. Johnson, who's a Berkeley lawyer at that time, uh, and talking about what you know this kind of program would look like bringing in some of the first faculty, bringing in that first class of students, some of which I, some of whom I know still very well and I still work with. And Melissa Schubert uh, from the first class is now a dean, is now the boss of the director of the Tory Honors Institute, who is in that first, I can close my eyes and see that first group of 30 odd students. And, and to see her get a PhD and become dean over the very program that I started, that's success, that's winning. And that's and she texted me during the Tory orientation this year. And there are children of some of the first Tory students in this year's class at Biola. Wow. Yeah. And so that's very exciting. And that's that's very sweet and good. And you know, there are people uh, that wish they hadn't done what we did and 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 think that we shouldn't have. Uh, but we did the best we could, and there, there's that sweet sense of being there for a golden time and that being a good thing for those folks. And I work with probably uh, 10, 15 Tory students in this project. This project would have been impossible without some of the chums, as we called them back in the day, uh, coming around and helping with the project. And there are so many of them across the nation 
that I draw on for wisdom and criticism, uh, that that's always a sweet and beautiful moment for me. Uh, you know, I, I will have been the worst director of Tory uh, in some ways, but I'll always have been the first. Uh, you, you start something and you get to the point where you wouldn't hire yourself because the thing gets better than uh, you could have done by yourself uh, over time. But you did it. You, you, by God's good grace and by God's help, uh, started the thing. And so, you know, I go over and I look at the film program, the cinema and new media arts program at Houston Baptist University. That's led by Joshua Sakura. And I remember Josh as a 20-year-old helping me lead a film meditatory class at Biola University. And now he doesn't need me. He doesn't call me on the phone and ask me for uh, direction about how to run his film program. He started a film program at HBU. He runs a film program at HBU. And it's wonderful to see him succeed. I, I, there's so many examples that I fear uh, I'll bring offense to the many people that I should talk about. <laughs> you don't end up mentioning. No, I appreciate that. That's Those do seem like really meaningful um, things to have invested in. I think maybe I'll just, I'll conclude our time by, by asking you about something I, I read during my prep, which just was very, honestly, just very unvarnished and seemed like very honest and genuine. You were, you were talking about kind of the response that you've received to some of your positions, as you mentioned it on, on certain scientific issues, people can look that up if they want. We don't have time to probably get into it, all of it here, but in your, in your, I think it was actually a written response <clears throat> to someone else the the thing that that really struck me was that you as i understood it talked for a portion of the response about the extent to which uh, again quite candidly there there has been in your career um kind of probably like a somewhat painful awareness that some of or some arm of academia that you would again very candidly wish would kind of have like a you would have liked them to have like a higher opinion of you um but but have accepted and recognized that perhaps they don't that you i I can also say yeah i I can accept i can i can say i think without uh being psychophantic or or disingenuous that you you do strike me as someone who probably who knows you it's just a guess but like that you you probably have the combination of brute uh, intelligence and charisma to have gone in the direction of more elite academia had you wanted to. And of course, that's no guarantee that it would have worked out. Um, that's, a, that's a tough road to, to go down just as a numbers game. But as you look back on your career, this is kind of a setup to me asking, and, and you kind of see like, wow, there's, there, there is kind of another road that I could conceivably have gone down. Um, as a Plato scholar or as someone who maybe pursued um, a different sort of echelon of rarefied air within the within the academy, but I didn't, and this is the direction that I that I went on. Like, kind of what 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 do you make of that in the context of your life? How does how do you feel about that? Yeah, I I um, so I'll say something very personal, and I think I think he's still alive, and I I know that I could find this paperwork if I had to to confirm this story. But I actually worked as the teaching assistant for a semester for Dennis O'Brien, who at that time was president of the University of Rochester while I was a grad student there. And, you know, doing my PhD work, 
and I was helping TA a class for him and had some good interactions with them, saw him work, you know, at a major research university, Eastman School of Music, saw some of that, you know, from the outside, I don't want to glorify this. And at some point I asked him for a reference as I began to look for jobs or further postdoc work. And he said to me, I remember sitting in the faculty club with the president of the University of Rochester, and he said, look, here's the deal. If you remain as robustly religious as you are, you cannot make it. You know, he was a somewhat progressive Roman Catholic in an era uh, that was much more open, like the 90s, that for that kind of Catholic person than it would be now. Uh, and he said, look, if you keep the same kind of religious views you have, no one will hire you. They should hire you if diversity meant anything. You could do this, uh, but you, you either have to mellow out or you have to make a decision. You're going to end up at a Bible college. And, and I'd like to say I leapt to my feet and, you know, sang a Christian anthem, but mostly I tried to figure out how to stop being a Christian. Like, okay, I get that. That's true. Like the thing you're saying is true. I didn't face persecution. People were really nice to me. Uh, but it's obviously the case that if the culture of academia is going this way and you're going another way, uh, that that's going to be problematic. And there are just so many good people. So it's nobody's like being mean to you. There are just so many good people that why should they put up with your eccentricities, like your view? And on top of it, they may find some of your eccentricities offensive and evil. So uh, that's all there. And so I had to make a decision about that. And so I felt like very early in my grad career, uh, I had to decide who it is I wanted to be and what it is I cared the most about. And my career kept evolving in those kinds of directions. Uh, general education, when I came out of grad school, and I think it's still true, is in horrible shape. Nobody wants to specialize in general education. Very few people uh, are good at it. Uh, at most places, it's horrible. Uh, it uses part-time people that they exploit all the time. And I decided I could be part of a solution to that, at least at one place. And if you specialize in general education, I can guarantee you uh, nobody in the academy is going to think you're awesome. So if I had done nothing else but that, like if I had been totally secular and specialized in general education, there was a kind of prize and reward. Remember, I went to grad school for free. So up to a certain point in my life, I, I, I applied to several schools, one of which I couldn't afford to go to that would have been even more prestigious than the one I went to. Uh, but free was better than borrowing money. Uh, and U of R was a top epistemology school uh, back in the day when I applied, still is a very well-regarded program. I worked with people like Deborah Modrak, who is an excellent Aristotle scholar. So, you know, I was playing the game and back in the day in the 90s, uh, jobs were out there. There were jobs. Uh, you know, everybody in my graduating class, it includes scholars like Hud Hudson, uh, and he's a great Kant scholar. Uh, Kelly Jolly, I think, is chairman of the Auburn Philosophy Department, who was in my graduating class. So it was a different era for jobs. But I chose uh, not, and now, now, was I as good as those people? I have no idea. I doubt it. Uh, I'm certainly not HUD. But, uh, you know, I was in class with those people. And so you felt like, you know, maybe I can do that. Maybe I could become uh, a person at a place like Auburn. Uh, and I decided not to. 
Uh, do I regret that sometimes? Sure. Uh, sometimes I think, well, that was a mistake. I feel a little sad, uh, but mostly no, uh, for the reasons I just gave. Uh, and uh, it's useless to worry about it anyway. Uh, I, I had directly, I had a really good mentor. This is, uh, President O'Brien was good to me to say that. He really spelled it out for me. I think you can do this at the highest level. And I think probably people should hire you anyway with your views. But I felt like I knew that as a traditional Christian, as an Orthodox Christian, the world wasn't going my way. And uh, there wasn't any sense in just getting the sack. Uh, and I, I don't, I'm not big into persecution narratives. I, I don't think I was persecuted. I don't feel like a victim of anything. I made choices and those choices had consequences and I accept those. Do I always like them? No. I wish I could have done it all, but I couldn't. I didn't have the capacity. It took me a decade to write When Athens Met Jerusalem, which I'm pretty proud of. I think it's a pretty decent uh, intro and has some good ideas in it. Uh, about ancient philosophy, uh, got my dissertation published, but I could have gotten a lot more done, but I also made the choice that I was gonna grow up and have my kids like me and come home for Christmas and know something about me. And so I also, there was a point in apologetics where I could have quit my job and just hit the road and made more money, but I didn't wanna do that. I couldn't sit with students like you as freshmen. I couldn't, um, I'm not saying this is good, uh, or altruistic, but I couldn't do all those things. So I spent more time with my kids because I chose to have four of them. Nobody made me. Uh, I chose to write uh, high school plays for my own kids and direct them, which meant I wasn't doing other things. I chose you know, to work at Tory Honors for two decades when people were headhunting me to go to shinier places and do the same thing. Uh, because I felt like it was important for Tory that I stay until it was well established. Just like for Tory's growth, it was important for me to leave after a certain stage of my career. So all of those things, uh, sometimes I wish I were back at Tory doing that same thing that I had never left. Not, not profoundly, not really. And they, I'm sure, are glad that I'm gone in a good and important way. People move on. But uh, I, what I'm saying to you is, yes, those are real. And what we really don't want to fall into, unless we live in a place like the Soviet Union, are weird persecution narratives or hostility narratives. You'll notice if you look at St. Constantine, whether the college or the K through 12, we do no oppositional advertising. We don't want people to come here because they hate something or are afraid. You know, I'm opposed to this. Now, I could make you a list of things we're opposed to that make people mad and would make some people glad and they give me money. But we don't center anything we're doing around, uh, man, those people down the street at HISD, those public schools are terrible. They're not. I, they're doing God's work the best they can in a really difficult situation. So who am I to judge them? And I, that served me well. That part of my career has served me well. When I haven't done that, that hasn't served me as well. And I'm a little a bit sorry about it. On the other hand, I'm not sorry I've had strong opinions and there are opinions that I haven't changed that it would have been more convenient for me to change many, many, many times. I don't know of any benefit of not changing them, except I thought they were true. Well, your candor is refreshing. And honestly, as somebody who's, you know, sort of taking stock and maybe a kind of a 
almost stereotypically laughably classic sense as I'm about to turn 40 of kind of what the, the rest of my career is going to look like. I appreciate, I appreciate that candor and that reminder that we, we got to make choices and then we got to live with those choices. Well, that could be as good a place as any to leave it. Uh, thank you so much genuinely for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. It was my honor. Faith in Letters is a production of Fax Animus Studios. Our production assistant is Tess Seabright, fact-checking by Dean Gilbert, and special thanks to Lydia Bradley.